This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And back in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After half a century of armed insurgency, members of Colombia's rebel group The FARC laid down their arms in 2016. Many suddenly had to think of what to do next. For some, the answer was to get involved with the tourist industry. And in Ukraine, the grain stalls mainly on the train and road and river routes out of the country. We discuss how farmers and one of the world's biggest grain exporters are coping with export difficulties because of Russia's invasion. But first... Here in Britain, a good summer used to mean seeing more than a few fleeting glimpses of the sun, ideally on a weekend or two. This, though, this is too much of a good thing. Yesterday, it was the hottest day on record in Wales. Early figures suggest that last night was Britain's hottest on record. Today, we're expecting an all-time high of 42 Celsius. That's 107 Fahrenheit. The story is much the same in the rest of Europe. Across the Mediterranean, from Morocco in the west to Greece in the east, thousands of firefighters have been deployed to deal with wildfires. The whole region has been sweltering, leaving vegetation to become tinder. France, too, has seen wildfires tear across its south, and our Paris bureau chief, Sophie Petter, has been speaking to those affected. The really worrying wildfires are in the southwest of France, near the Atlantic coast, and that's where the government has begun to mobilize more and more firefighters, nearly 2,000 of them. There are more than six of these sort of water bombing planes now trying to put out the fires, and the French government have evacuated about 16,000 people from the two areas of the Gironde, south of Bordeaux. <laughs> I was speaking to a resident in the town of Arcachon who could see the fire still blazing. The temperatures are rising. The winds have been picking up, and this is making it extremely difficult to get these fires under control days and days later. The scenes that are being described to the firefighters are just horrendous, you know, incredibly intense heat. The kind of fires that just keep picking up again as fast almost as the firemen manage to put them out. So vast acres of forest being destroyed. Vast is the right word here. The French wildfires have now leveled an area larger than the whole of Paris. And it's not just Europe. The extraordinary weather that we're seeing in France at the minute is really just part of a much bigger picture. 
Katrine Breig is The Economist's environment editor. Europe at the minute is basically sitting under a big mass of hot air that has blown up from North Africa and has engulfed all of the Mediterranean and is now reaching British shores. Elsewhere, we have also got extreme heat in the US, in the southeast. They've got heat warnings for the rest of the week. We've also got very unusually hot weather in China at the minute. So what we're seeing right now is a suite of concurrent heat waves in many very disparate parts of the globe. And this is off the back of an already unusually hot year. You mentioned the reason for the European heat wave. Are all of these other situations linked in some way? Yeah, so I spoke to Richard Betts of the UK Met office earlier about this. And the bottom line from him and from climate scientists generally at the minute is that really the linking factor here is climate change. It's probably worth saying that this is exactly what we've been predicting for the last 20 or 30 years. More heat waves uh, is very obviously a consequence of a world that's getting warmer. Climate change has made it more severe. It's even hotter than it would have been because... Of- there is some science to suggest what's known as teleconnections, so long-range interactions between weather patterns in different parts of the planet. That science still comes with some uncertainties. So these events that we're looking at right now aren't necessarily linked meteorologically. They may, they may not be. But what is very clear is that as the globe continues to warm, the likelihood of concurrent heat waves happening also goes up. So I was looking at a study that studied trends between 1979 and 2019, so basically the last 40 years, and found that simultaneous heat waves had become seven times more likely in that time period. Those concurrent events are also affecting larger and larger areas, and they're becoming more and more intense. Which is to say, we should get used to this. People talk about a new normal. And the problem with talking about a new normal with climate change is that there is no such thing, really. As long as we're still increasing the flow of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year, global average temperatures will continue to rise. So yes, on the one hand, societies, governments, countries around the world need to adapt to hotter and hotter temperatures. On the other hand, there is right now no final destination. I should add to all of this that the event that we're experiencing in Europe right now, this still is quite an unusual event for the current warming of approximately 1.1 degrees globally. And Richard Betts was saying to me, it's estimated to be the sort of event that you'd expect once every 100 to once every 300 years under current conditions. But those calculations are very difficult to make. And what about the efforts to head off what else might be coming? How are those going? So we're now in July, seven months since the sort of, let's say, mitigated failure or mitigated success, depending on how you want to look at it, of the COP26 summit. We're also now rapidly moving towards the next UN Global Climate Summit, which is COP27, which will take place in November of this year. Really, at this point... Governments should have substantially stepped up on their commitments to reduce emissions. Now, that's not really happening. And there are plenty of very good reasons for that, right? Governments have been very preoccupied with many other things, war, energy crises, financial crises. But 
while all those factors are completely understandable, the global climate continues to warm. On top of that, in some leading countries, and I'm now looking to the United States, we've had some real setbacks. So just last week, for instance, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin scuppered an important climate bill that has been put forward by President Biden known as the Build Back Better plan. We've also had some other very upsetting news from the United States on the climate front just this month when the Supreme Court basically made it very, very difficult for Joe Biden to regulate emissions from existing power plants. So there's the global picture, which is definitely not heading in the direction of more stringent greenhouse gas emission targets. And then there are, in particular in the United States, there's a national picture, which is really very concerning. So that is the rather unhappy picture for what's called mitigation in climate speak. But you also mentioned another phrase that we hear a lot from you about adaptation. What does that entail? Yeah, so adaptation is basically what societies need to do in order to live with the climate change that we already have and also the measures that societies need to put in place in order to prepare to live with more climate change. Basically, what you need to do is you need to warm the population of impending heat provide areas that are artificially cooled, whether that's public buildings that have air conditioning. Painting roofs white will also lower temperatures inside the buildings. There's real evidence that having more green spaces in urban areas will noticeably decrease local temperatures and people can take refuge in parks. There's examples in South Africa where they set up cooling sprays, literally just mists so that people can cool off. And then there's infrastructure, right? It's really important that societies continue to function despite the heat. So governments need to think about the heat limits that their infrastructure can cope with and adapt their infrastructure to that. That makes it sound like there are plenty of solutions and all you need to do is plant some trees in urban areas. The reality is that in many places, those measures are either difficult or impossible to put in place. So I'm thinking of slums where... People are living in tin houses with no windows, no ventilation, of course no air conditioning. Painting the roof white can make a real difference, but ultimately it's limited in scope. But for the moment, until those kinds of things are implemented, we're going to see more of this and all of the effects it brings. Unfortunately, yes, there is a certain amount of warming that is baked into the system, and we will certainly see more of this. If there is one thing that people need to take away from it is that this is precisely what climate scientists have been warning of for well over a decade now. Those predictions are coming true today. Their future predictions will continue to come true until governments take this crisis seriously and in the midst of all of the other crises that they're having to manage, prioritize the climate crisis and absolutely bring emissions down to net zero. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The decades-long insurgency in Colombia that pitted the left-wing rebel group known as FARC against the government and right-wing paramilitary groups was one of the longest and deadliest domestic conflicts in the Western Hemisphere. The two sides reached a peace deal in 2016. At the signing of the deal, FARC called the agreement the Hope Accord. The group demobilized and handed over their weapons to the United Nations. But for many of them, it left a conundrum. What to do after all those years of fighting? So a few weeks ago, I went for a guided rafting tour in Colombia near a small settlement called Miravalle. Lawrence Blair writes about Latin America for The Economist. It's part of the Colombian Amazon. It's a very remote area. And it's somewhere where outsiders have really not dared to go for decades, mainly because uh, it's where a column of the FARC guerrilla group called Home. But now it's become a lot more accessible. Tourists can now go there and safely visit and can take part in a experience of going whitewater rafting through the jungle, guided by the former FARC fighters. And how was the tour? Give us a sense of, of what the trip was like, what it looked like, what it felt like. Well, it's an incredible experience going down these rivers. Derecha, atrás. You begin in a canyon, which stretches up on either side. You can hear the sounds of dripping vines coming down these sheer walls of rock. There are parrots flying overhead and squawking. And as you head further down the river, it becomes wider and quicker. You start going down rapids. And there are boulders and tree trunks and things you need to sort of swerve around. You're paddling really fast at times. The, the pilots, the former FARC rebels, are giving you the instructions. Paddle left, paddle right, stop. So it's a really exhilarating experience and a real privilege to go through it in the flesh. And you said the tour guides are former FARC rebels. Can you give us a sense, just quickly, of what the conflict was in which they fought and how it ended? So the armed conflict in Colombia was a civil war. It was a real bloody and, and complicated conflict, which goes back almost 60, 70 years. Initially, it began in 1964, or at least formally, when the army moved in and bombed these self-governing armed communes up in the mountains, which in turn had been founded by refugees fleeing violence elsewhere in Colombia. The FARC emerged as a sort of mobile guerrilla force they take on the government. Uh, but over time, other actors get involved. You have paramilitary groups, you have other rebel groups, you have narco-traffickers getting involved. The FARC themselves turn to kidnapping and trafficking cocaine to finance themselves. So it's, you know, an incredibly bloody period. And just last month in June, the Truth Commission, which was founded in 2016 when the peace deals finally struck, they found that over 450,000 people were killed just between 1985 and, and 2018. And around 7 million people fled their homes. So 
it was a real kind of humanitarian catastrophe. But finally, a few years ago in 2016, they signed a peace deal with the government of Juan Juan Santos, in which in exchange for promises of rural development and reintegration into civilian life, they would give up their weapons. So once they gave up their weapons, how did these former rebels end up working as tour guides? Well, I think the whole rationale behind the project, and there are a few other ones like it, is that once you've been a guerrilla for 20, 30 years, you're not the best or perhaps the most attractive entrant on the job market. So the idea behind this rafting project and a few others like it, these rural tourism projects, is to give a livelihood. And the UN was also involved in this project. And really, you know, the idea is to say, well, listen, you guys, you guerrillas, you've been patrolling these rivers for decades, you know the currents, you know the scenery. So what better way to sort of provide you with a livelihood than to get you in the boat and take tourists? So I think that sounds fascinating, and I'm very jealous of your whitewater rafting trip. But the question is, are we outliers in that? Are other tourists coming? Is this initiative really proving effective? From what I could tell, these projects are making a difference to a small number of people, and the people involved in them are really thrilled. The guys I spoke to said, this is incredible, it's much better to be doing this and enjoying the incredible scenery and the incredible biodiversity than it is to be trudging with a gun on your back and a, and a pack and that kind of thing. The guy who was our rafting guide, he said to me, you'd have to be mad to prefer war over peace. So I think it's a crucial source of income. But I think the problem is that these areas are very hard to get to, you know, the figures that they gave me at Kagawan Expeditions with the guys who run the rafting project is that only about 10% of their, of their visitors so far have been foreigners. Most of them are Colombian, but I think that's very positive as well because it provides an opportunity, I think, for Colombians who on all sides of the conflict and who have perhaps stigmatized each other. It's been talk of no-go areas. It's been talk about the other side being monsters. There's no denying that, you know, some real horrific atrocities were committed, but it provides an opportunity for people to kind of come face to face and see, well, maybe we actually do have some, some things in common. And I think that the other interesting thing that I found walking around is that you see how there's quite a big sense of anger that we're now five years on from the peace deal. A lot of those promises of rural development still haven't happened. There hasn't been the investment in hospitals, roads, schools, which I think everyone kind of agrees is, is really what needs to happen for Colombia to kind of move forward and put this violence behind it. So when you phrase it like that, it sounds to me as though the violence is not entirely behind us, right? So have all the FARC rebels really given up their guns or is, is violence still a concern? That's right. The war is formally over, but I think the situation has become a lot more fragmented. Like for example, in Miravalle, in the rafting project, some of the guys who were working on the river as rafting guides have kind of taken up work instead as bodyguards for their former commanders. And they're protecting their former commandantes, who obviously are, are quite big targets. And around 300 demobilized FARC fighters have been killed since 2016, as a UN figures. And I think it's also fair to say that a lot of FARC fighters, A, never handed in their weapons. You know, about 7,000 did demobilize in 2016-17, but quite a few more remained kind of at large. And, and of those who did demobilize, a lot of them have gone back to the jungle. They've gone back to, quote unquote, the armed struggle. So there is still some tension remaining. It's not all, it's not all kumbaya and rafting tours just yet. No, um, not, not yet. And I think because things are still quite tense on the ground and there are a lot of uncertainties remaining, I think we're not going to see FARC tourism join the sort of gringo trail just yet. But I think ultimately the, the great thing about these projects is that they are helping to keep some families on, on the straight and narrow. So 
I think they're great projects. And if they can provide even a small push towards peace and stability, uh, I think that's a great thing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Ukraine provides 10% of the world's wheat, 16% of its maize, and around half its sunflower oil. But those exports have mostly been halted by Russia's invasion. In June, Ukraine exported just 2.5 tons of grain, mostly by road or rail, compared with around 8 million tons per month before the war, most of which went through the Black Sea. Turkey, which has been hosting talks on grain exports, says Ukraine and Russia have reached a deal to open sea routes. Russia's President Vladimir Putin may sign that deal today when he meets his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, in Tehran. But even if that does happen, shifting the huge surplus that is built up will be a lengthy process. And Ukraine's farmers will still be left wondering what to do with it all in the meantime. Ukraine farmers are facing a very difficult harvest because of the war this year. Maria Vilcek is a news editor for The Economist. Usually, their granaries would have been emptied by this point and ready for fresh mountains of grain and oilseed to fill them. But because of the blockade of seaports, uh, the country has now run up a backlog of more than 20 million tonnes of trapped grain from last season. And although this year's production is expected to fall by one third, that still means that Ukrainian farmers are looking at an annual harvest of about 26 million tonnes of maize, which is the largest crop, 19 million tonnes of wheat, 7 million tonnes of barley and 13 million tonnes of oilseeds. And that is now starting to trickle down as farmers across Ukraine are just starting a new harvest of winter crops. And up to now, they've been unable to get grain out through the seaports, right? What about other methods of transport? Many traders have been scrambling to get the grain out using replacement routes, which involve rail, road and river. But the problem with these is that uh, getting grain and seeds out through European countries is more time-consuming and expensive. So the country has been able to carry out less than 2 million tonnes per month in these ways, as compared to about 6 million tonnes through ports. So for many farmers, this just doesn't make economic sense, and instead they are hoarding their stockpiles. But uh, a third of granaries are still full with last year's crop. And to make matters worse, a fifth of storage facilities have been damaged in attacks or lie in Russian-occupied territories. So as this new harvest comes in now, the government reckons that Ukraine will lack about 10 to 15 million tonnes worth of suitable storage. And the country's grain association thinks that this gap could even be as high as 25 million tonnes, which is about a, a third of the new harvest coming in. So how can farmers protect the grain they're producing now? Well, one way of doing this, which is quite popular, is using secure silo bags. These are long plastic sleeves that can be left out in the fields with about 200 tonnes of grain each. The problem is, though, that they have to be imported into the country, and that has been a bottleneck, and about 50,000 would be needed to take in all the excess. Uh, So the government is ordering mobile storage facilities, which are these modular things that can also be set up in fields to protect grain from the elements and pests. 
Smaller producers for whom these methods aren't available are cutting deals with each other to share warehouses. But these facilities that haven't been certified by the states usually lack the industrial drying machines, which are necessary to properly preserve the crops. So a final resort would be leaving maize in the fields. This is possible throughout the winter, but there is a risk to the quality and the yield of the crops. And Maria, as, as you know, Turkey and the UN have been trying to reach an agreement between Russia and Ukraine to resume exports. That could happen today. It could be signed today. But long term, what does the future look like for Ukraine's farmers? Many Ukrainian farmers are bracing for their own long war. And that means that with higher logistics costs, they are rethinking the mix of crops that they are using. For example, that could mean that they will swap out cheap but capital-intensive maize for things like oil seeds, such as sunflower and rape, which are uh, more profitable. Others may decide to sit out the next season altogether. The war has left farmers with destroyed machinery and cut them off from fields and occupied territories. And with soaring fertilizer prices and all the uncertainty, they may decide that it's better to not plant at all. Let's hope not. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.